The episode that you will hear now was the pilot episode of the Antinu Energy Transition podcast that we put out last spring. Yet, we publish it again since the audience of the podcast has grown substantially since we really kicked it off in December. And therefore, many of you will probably not have had the chance to actually listen to this episode. So, why are just transitions relevant? Well, we don't only need to accelerate the decarbonization of our societies, but we have to do it in a way that allows us to conserve nature and also to keeping energy prices affordable so that we won't have polarization in our societies and that everyone can have a good life. And this is where transitions and just transitions actually come together. What you will learn in this episode are the following things. We will talk about what just transitions are, why we need them, and obviously how we can make sure that energy transitions are actually just. Right, that's all I have to say here now. Enjoy the episode. Let's go. If people don't consider themselves heard or included, and if they don't see themselves in the transformations that we are proposing, designing and implementing, of course, that will create a lot of antibodies against them. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this Antinu Energy Transition podcast, which is brought to you by the Antinu Energy Transition Initiative. Um, <laughs> and I have a lovely guest here, and her name is Rita Vasconcelos de Oliveira, and I'm really bad at pronouncing that. So, Rita, please just say your name once. Rita Vasconcelos de Oliveira, but you pronounce it wonderful. Uh, no worries. I'm trying to get in there. Lovely, lovely. Okay, cool. Everyone, you already heard what you're going to learn in this uh, in this podcast episode. Um, we will start off, though, with three questions, either or questions, to... Rita, and then we'll get into the topic of just transitions. So, Rita, Lisbon or Trondheim? Oh, that's so tough. <laughs> Please don't make me choose. Okay, you have one joker, maybe. You have one joker. Okay, that is a joker. Okay. I love them both. Yeah? No. Is it okay? Yeah. Yeah, because you, you, you were born there or you just studied in, in Lisbon? No, I was born there. Yeah. And I studied there and I lived there and I taught there. And then I went to uh, the UK, the Netherlands... And I ended up here. Oh, that sounds really like a researcher uh, <laughs> curriculum. Uh, curriculum, that's like CV, isn't it? Like we all got to travel around and go to different places, isn't it? Yeah, yeah but I love to travel. Yeah, so. And I came here on purpose because I visited um, uh, Norway before on vacation and I just loved it. You liked it? Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. I'm also just, you know, recently came here and I really like it as well. Okay, second question. Um, do you rather prefer organizing a conference as you're organizing the, this conference here that we are doing the podcast or do you prefer participating in a conference? So organizing versus participating. What's your what's your take? I love organizing Yeah, the conference. It's really cool. I get to work with wonderful people. I get to meet uh, researchers, get in contact with all this amazing new knowledge coming up. So, of course, I also like to participate, but as an organizer, I also get that. So, yeah. definitely organizing. Yeah? Okay, cool. Because you, because what I heard in the last weeks is like, oh, this is quite some work, and yeah, let's hope it all works out. But that's maybe just a very normal thing, isn't it? When you, when you organize a conference, it always looks busy. Yeah, and I like that hectic part of, yeah? of uh, organizing. Yeah, I like the adrenaline, the rush, the people, all this, um, how can I say, all this fun that is associated with it. And the fact that it's not a streamlined thing, yeah. that you need to be prepared for challenges, for new things, new topics, uh, how people want to do 
things and that difference every day and every in, in this case in, in this case every year makes me like it even more hey super cool is it so it's not your first time that you organize a conference is that correct no it's my second it's time second here time. but i've organized before yeah. several conferences yeah, I imagine in the yeah. past yeah. but not as big as this one and never actually online Virtual yeah. conferences, so well, this is my second. Yeah, this is also due to this all this pandemic stuff, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But I guess we'll see much more, uh, at least hybrid conferences in the future. So it's probably really good that you got that experience right now. Okay, when people look at your CV, dear Rita, it looks a bit crazy because you've done two master degrees and you've done two, or you're about to finish the second PhD. So that's why the last question is, I, what's more interesting to you? What 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 grips you more? Sustainability education or applied ethics? Because your first PhD is in sustainable education, the second one is in applied ethics. <laughs> you know, both of them are about sustainability and are about actually fairness and giving opportunities of for people to actually participate in transformation towards sustainability. So again, uh, I cannot dissociate one from another one because. All my life I worked in sustainability since I started taking my master in biology and geology. Yeah. So that's it's just a continuation. <laughs> But that's so crazy. Like masters in geology and biology and then going to applied ethics. That's really cool. That, I, I, that's really cool. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> Let's get into the topic. So one of the main, main themes or maybe actually the main theme of uh, this year's energy transition conference here at uh, Antenu in Norway is just transitions. So we'll, we'll have a short chat now in this episode about just transitions. So before we actually jump into that topic of just transitions, can you like say why we actually talk about energy transitions? Because we're going to talk about just energy transitions, but like why we need this energy transition. And I think to most of the people who listen to this podcast, you probably know why we need the energy transition, but just like, just to get everyone on board. Uh, Rita, what is an energy transition and why do we need it? Okay, so uh, there are many definitions, of course, of what is or can be an energy transition. But for me, it's actually a structural transformation of the energy system. And that means that we can see it uh, both at the production side and also as the con at the consumption side. So if we're talking about production side, I think as trying to decarbonize the energy generation, trying to reach kind of zero carbon Uh, emissions so that we can reach the climate goals that uh, the countries have signed for, right? Um, on the side of, of consumption, is actually changing the patterns of consumption, but also, at least in my opinion, is think about us as active participants, not just as consumers mm -hmm. uh, and participants, of course, of this energy system. So for me, personally, is about creating awareness, both as individuals, as collectives, and also as institutions, that we have the power, so we should have also the will to transform, mm. and um, creating that space and time and occasions to do this transformation, I think, is of the most importance. Yeah, I also think it's it's like the task of our generation, and it, I feel there's so many people out there who like feel disempowered, yeah. and I feel when we feel disempowered, we're not going to get anywhere anyways, so it's like... I like this, but that you say it's it's about participation. It's about like getting stuff done, and I think that's also why we work here, I guess, and this is why we you guys do this conference. Or we we since I'm now also part of the uh, Into New Energy Transition Initiative. Um, that's why we do it: bring people together and get stuff done, and to empower people maybe to to take their step because we need all 
to be empowered and to do stuff, isn't it? Absolutely. And above all, I see us as researchers, as employees of a public university, also with the responsibility to bring on the people that are not part of this bubble. Yeah. And we need to create spaces for them to be heard. And we need to collaborate with those people. Yeah, like with the people <laughs> Not outside. just for yeah, them, yeah, yeah. but with them. Yeah. Because be- being in the bubble ain't a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and I think that's, that's true, important, and just uh, connecting with my past activities, it's important to not forget that not all people share the visions and uh, we have, neither should they, of course, but we need to be constantly reminded how they think yeah. and, and what are their positions, what are their necessities and um, so that we can bring everyone on board and not use that just as a slogan. Yeah, yeah. It's empty words we are all <laughs> kind we of... We got enough empty words. Exactly, huh? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So now we kind of have an idea what the energy transition is about and why we need it. Why do we need not only energy transitions, but why do we need just energy transitions? So any process of, 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 of transformation um, can, in, in that sense, produce uh, or um, kind of increase the inequalities that already are there in, 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 in societies. And by doing so, and we have lots of examples throughout history of happening, uh, of, of those negative consequences of, of very sudden transformations in, may it be societal or technologically speaking, we as a whole, individuals, of course, but also as researchers, have a moral obligation, and yes, I'm going to use the word moral here, <laughs> obligation, to uh, make it so that we decrease those, those inequalities, mitigate and prevent them. Uh, and that's why I think it's important that we always consider the questions of fairness and justice behind our actions, both individually and collectively. So, and that said, what is fair and just? We could spend a dozen podcasts thinking about mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. but to, to just give you a little bit of context in, in the field of energy transition, we think that uh, uh, fairness has kind of, three ways of being thought of. We, we can consider the questions of distributive justice in the sense of how to share burdens and benefits yeah. of, uh, of a, a transformation, for example. We can also talk about procedural justice in the sense that every process that we create for that transformation, uh, in that sense, uh, is done under certain values. For for example, uh, we can guarantee that is as much as possible transparent, that people get accountable, that the agents have responsibilities and know of them. And the final one, which I think is quite important these days, especially related with the social movements we have been uh, part of, which is recognition justice. And that's something that we tend to forget, especially here in Europe. Uh, It has to do with several groups, social groups that have been forgotten Mm. or actually... What groups could that be? Oh, minorities. I give you an example from when I worked in Portugal. Mm. We have groups such as the Roma. Mm. um, People that have still a lot of problems in having access to 
energy. So we're talking about energy poverty here. Mm. And there's but energy poverty means like I don't have the means, I don't have the money to just pay my electricity bills, for instance, or I don't have enough money to heat my home. Or is that energy poverty? Yes, that is one of the mm. the dimensions of energy poverty. Or the fact that because they are itinerant, it's not always very easy to actually grant them that access to energy, for example. Because what was the word that you used? Itinerant. Itinerant means? So they go they and there's... Yeah, they move. Yeah, yeah. So we still have those populations, for example, in the south of Europe. Yeah. We need to account for that when we think about energy transition. Mm. Not all of us have a home. Mm -hmm. Right. Not necessarily. Like we, we as <laughs> like just, well educated people, sure we have yeah, a home. But, but you know, that's but the bubble again. <laughs> again, the bubble. But there, we need to consider there are people that do not have this kind of permanent housing, for example, yeah. and how to account for that. But we can yeah. also think about elderly or whatever. Yeah. And those are usually the groups that tend to be forgotten mm. by by uh, whoever makes things, designs, implements. Mm. <laughs> the energy transformation mm. and it's up to us to not forget that yeah yeah I, I, like just when you when you you know okay so the three dimensions were distribution process and recognition isn't it That's, exactly yeah so just when you like started off with distribution i had so many ideas it's like okay what about like these people when uh when paris the the municipality of paris decides to not have electric car or like only have electric cars then what about these people who don't have the means to buy another car so they cannot go into the city anymore and do like their jobs there that could be an, an, another example or even there's another example that popped into my head for instance when you have a if, um, in, in nusk in norwegian Buritslag, if you have a large <laughs> if you have a, like what's that Uh, apartment building or something and then someone comes in and says you gotta refurbish that but some households may not have the means and might not have the money to do that so that you run in all types of of like challenges really to to get these people on board isn't it absolutely and that's exactly some of the problems we are we as say here more in europe are <laughs> dealing with so but yeah you're right and talking about actually the electrical vehicles Of course, we know there's a lot of push towards electrical vehicles, but as you just pointed out, there are people that do not have the means to purchase one, neither they want to in that in that sense. Mm. <laughs> And so maybe we should try to find other solutions for reaching uh, the climate goals uh, that are that are not related to purchasing a, a vehicle. So and that's what. I try to in my work is open up possibilities, get people thinking about other ways of reaching the same goals, which is of course decarbonizing the energy system in the way we use mm. and and generate energy. But again, we need to think broader, and that's why it's so important to have uh, several agents on board this conversation. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, um, I would think that. I think you also mentioned that like participation and acceptance is also, um, yeah, is, is, is really needed in, in, to make transitions or like energy transitions happening. When, when we think about, um, these, these people that might live in a, in a, in an apartment building and don't like, they, they get, they get measures put, pushed up on them. Um, do you think like, maybe that's a very suggestive question here, but do you think that they peop these people then might not really like that or might be not really happy with that? And then is there a risk that these people then like start not voting for democratic parties anymore, but might start voting for other parties like right wing, left wing, whatever, um, strongly like radical parties because they don't feel seen anymore? Does that fit into this recognition part, this last part that you mentioned? 
Well, I'm not sure about the political the political implication that you just mentioned. I don't have the data, yeah. but nice, for nice sure. researcher out there. <laughs> could be, maybe I don't have data. But <laughs> I can can at least uh, tell you from from of course my my work, but also my work as a researcher and previously as an educator, that if or can if people don't consider themselves heard or included and if they don't see themselves in the transformations that we are proposing designing and implementing of course that will create a lot of antibodies against them because they feel that something coming from the outside forcing them to do something and even if they are aware of the global benefits mm. then it's a question of why should I put the global benefits in front of my own And this creates or can create a yeah. lot of uh, of uh, negative feelings about the energy transformation. And, and you are right. When we consider a group, we need to look at individuals. People are and have desires and they, they, they have values, again, sure. <laughs> that are different. And we need to account for those. And, of course, when we think about and design top-down initiatives we run into the risk of creating those antibodies and disengage people even more from the uh, the transformations we would like to to have um, put in place. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I do believe that. And of course, we could discuss possibilities of how to mitigate that throughout economical incentives, throughout education, throughout all of that. But in the end, whatever we choose to do to prevent such situations is indeed what I consider to, to be trying to create a fair transition, mm. is thinking about, uh, about that. And as you just pointed out, when people are angry, when people are disillusioned, when people do not have hope, of course, we might run into an increase in social disruption, but not of the good kind. Mm. And yes, we need to account for that, both uh, policymakers, but also us as individuals. I like that you say the individuals and not just like, oh, these minority groups, because like group is how, yeah, we can't account for a group, isn't it? Like, and then you might like target them or like do some new like incentives or whatever. But yeah, it's just a variety of people that we have to take in. Yeah, yeah. Take into account when decisions are made. You use this word of a top-down decision or top-down strategy or something. Um, just to be inclusive for the people who listen to this podcast, what do you mean with that? What 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 is it? What is a top-down approach, and what is the other side of a top-down approach? <laughs> <laughs> so very very summarized. Um, a top-down approach is or would be in the way I thought of it as a kind of a strategy that is thought by a group of people, usually policymakers or politicians, that is then uh, implemented uh, on the ground. I can give you an example, subsidies, right? It mm. could be a, a top-down or some kind of a national program for supporting the purchase of electrical vehicles mm. <laughs> mm. or something along those lines. And on the con on the contrary, no, I don't like to say on the contrary because they should actually be together. But yeah. another side to this is what we called bottom-up approaches or bottom-up initiatives. And it has to do when citizens, individuals get together in, in, in groups or sometimes even individually and start their own strategies and initiatives, uh, what we call grassroots 
sorry, <laughs> grassroots movements. And these ones are thought by the individuals and the communities and then are implemented in particular parts of society. The good thing about those is that usually they are thought already for those communities, hence they have the chance of uh, acquiring uh, or being more successful and by doing so, not raising so many antibodies mm. because those are the people that know reality there mm. and what people need and want and desire. Yeah. And but forward. like this sounds now really nice for these bottom-up things, but they also have some downsides, isn't it? It's like if you, there's some, it's not so easy sometimes to, to replicate them. Um, if you want to... If you want to yeah, st stimulate a specific development all over a country or even the European Union, for instance, you can't just like rely on 10 initiatives in 10 countries or something to really have an impact. So that's probably where, where the top down and the, the, the bottom up stuff needs to come together. So, you, for instance, what can be done is like having some bottom up initiatives, learn from these initiatives and then maybe implement top down uh, approaches in um, that have learned from these local initiatives. But I'm just like wandering around here and just like... I yeah, could not agree this. more. It's yeah. necessary both and above all articulate them. What do you mean? Articulate in, in the sense that uh, top down approaches can actually open ferment initiatives that come from grassroots. Mm. And then you have or can have the best of both worlds. Yeah. And that's exactly what you're pointing out. So we need them both, and they should not be exclusive, but rather integrated, yeah. organically integrated. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> for good. We already talked about like the, the, by these examples that you gave from, for instance, for the Roma people, um, that just transitions might not be always the same. Like a just transition in, I don't know, in Spain, or for instance, just energy transition, might look very different from an energy transition that is in Poland or something where in Poland, for instance, there's a lot of coal that's being used still and that needs to be phased out probably in the long run. And there's a lot of like large um, regions that are really, really strongly dependent on this specific uh, means of energy production. So um, could you elaborate a bit about like, yeah, this, this divide that we say we think about just energy transitions, but actually they may look very differently in very different spaces. Absolutely. Actually, they should. Because <laughs> mm. our world is so heterogeneous that, of course, they, they should. And I think some of the factors we need to look upon is see the differences geographically, socially, economically, political, even environmental. And we need to account for those. Just to give you an example of, of how um, energy, fair energy transitions can look like, for example, here in what we call the global north, we think about just or fair uh, energy transitions. But in the, th in the south, is about far more about glo uh, global south, should I say, is far more about energy poverty and energy access. Mm. So as you can see, very different. Mm. So and if we think about creating systems that mitigate uh, uh, um, inequalities, for example, distribution inequalities, like giving uh, the possibility for people to invest in green uh, in green energies that is not so much the case when we talk about populations in uh, in um, in India where access to any kind of energy is still a major problem yeah. for example where we see a huge a, 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 a huge um, inequality for example regarding gender regarding costs regarding well all of these dimensions so I think it's important to see energy justice in the north in that sense, energy poverty in the south are two, not different, but at, at least they're, they're, 
dissimilar in that sense. Mm. You're talking about, for example, here in Europe, of course, we <laughs> we need to also consider that Europe is not definitely homogeneous and the, the necessities, for example, from areas that depended upon coal, for example, like in Germany and Poland. But also uh, Greece, for instance, has... Northern Macedonia has a lot of coal and they don't even really know what to do when the coal is gone. And they have, an, an, they have a national uh, exnovation strategy now for coal. So they will get out and people are a bit, how are we going to do this? Yeah, And, and, and this is totally understandable. Like that there's anxiety that that's rising there. Of course. And and we need to account for that and start preparing that that transformation. I know just uh, I'm not so familiar with th those areas, but I know of several programs in the United States, for example, in the Appalachians, where they started to to um, give new opportunities for former workers that uh, were dealing with those with those um, or sorry, former workers of coal companies mm -hmm. to try to transform uh, their their uh, jobs into, for example, IT. So they give they gave them a lot of opportunities to do courses and shift towards something new. And in that sense, it ended up being quite beneficial for them mm -hmm. because uh, the, the the work carries much less risk. They are far more independent and autonomous. Mm -hmm. They can create their own companies. And in the end, probably they will have higher salaries. So it mm -hmm. <laughs> could be uh, money-wise uh, very profitable. But it, of course... That but it's challenging. Can be challenging, and you need a lot of resources as well to for, to doing all these uh, education programs and stuff, isn't it? It's, it's not like done in a no. And we need to also to blink of an eye. absolutely. And there's money involved. There's structures that need to be set up, but there's also the hearts and minds of people, because you can't just say to them, okay, now all your family and your other generations have worked on coal, but now it's over. Mm. And now let's start making <laughs> all of you kind of IT wizards. It makes no sense whatsoever. Mm -hmm. There's also an identity in those communities that is associated with this, uh, with coal and and uh, fossil fuel energies that we need to account for. And this takes time. And and there will be a lot of back and forth in those strategies. So we should also not think it's going to be kind of bed of roses. Mm. <laughs> I like that you just said about this 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 identity that evolved around these kind of fossil fuel technologies because very often in uh, when I talk to engineers or economists or whatever they very often have this idea of like okay we need to take this bad technologies out and we have to put the new technologies in here we go no big deal and then you realize with with examples as you just provided Rita is that yeah the energy transition or energy transformation however you want to call it is really a transformation of a whole complex social technical system where its technologies and societal elements really are woven in together to each other. And it's not just that the technologies need to change, but it's like all this grit, this interwovenness between uh, between values and habits and norms and experiences and identities. They also need to also be de-aligned and then newly realigned. And that's probably also what takes much longer than just like pushing up one new technology into the market. Yeah. And I think it's very good that you mentioned that this is a social technological transformation and mm -hmm. we should never forget that yeah. that part and and because by doing so we are most likely creating even more inequality and that's again one of the reasons why we should think about fair energy transitions yeah. we need to woven in and, and we need to also create within those communities people voices 
that can translate the ideas that are, or the ideas and the technologies that are uh, designed and produced into their communities, their lingo, their ways of life. And mm. we need those bridges. And those mm. bridges are done by people mm. and for them. And I think that we should invest, not only economically speaking, but yeah, yeah. socially speaking, into creating those bridges, facilitating. And that's where I think... Mm. You need intermediaries. And they need, to, uh, they need to be paid as well, isn't it? Yeah, but sure, of course. Yeah, and yeah. economical yeah. incentives are at most important, but I'm definitely not the person to talk so much about that. I just want to focus more on facilitating, creating these, uh, these uh, how can I say, these bridges. And those could be either, and there's been a lot of stories uh, done with young people, for example, and that mm. also would bring the question of, of getting uh, young people involved and in times with such uncertainty. Yeah. It could be a good strategy. No, no, yeah, but no one likes uncertainty, isn't it? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but also elderly people. So I think we could get those two, those two uh, age groups, for example, far more involved mm. in into the energy transitions. Yeah, and that's also why we do this podcast, isn't it? To, to reach <laughs> out and to give give an opportunity. And then yeah. it's about them to decide whether they want to join us. And exactly. Maybe learn something. Not from us, but maybe from the discussion. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to talk one more, or let's say, okay, I'm the moderator, but I just, I just have this feeling I would like to give one more example for how... Uh, economic incentives can actually increase the um, the, um, the inequalities in a society um, even though these measures should could, can be good for the uh, faster diffusion of renewable technologies but can also actually increase these inequalities for um, and the example that I want to give comes from Germany because I'm German and I know that market the best but I think everyone or many people who listen to this know that in 2000, there was the Renewable Energy Act implemented, and that one, that act actually gave a lot of money for implementing solar PV on roofs um, with a super high price. So pe people who did that, put it on their roof, got a lot of money for just doing that, and the, the PV panels were really expensive. But like that, you only gave money to people who had the ability to actually get credit at the bank and who have actually houses. So they got money um, and good money to put solar PV plants on their roofs and also make uh, wind farms, small wind farms. Um, but like that, you give these people who already have money more incentive, more money for doing this because they can do it and other unfortunate, like less fortunate parts of society can't do that. But like that, you give them even more money. Yes, you increase the, the buildup of renewable energy in the country, but like that, you actually increase the 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 wealth of the rather rich people or the higher high middle class and high middle class and you actually where do, where does the money come from well it's a levy that it goes on every kilowatt hour that is sold so also yeah, also obviously the the richer people need to pay it but uh, also the not so wealthy people need to pay it so they is actually it's you could say it's a not substitution what's it like in um, in German it's sub subvention Ah, uh, yeah, what's yeah. that? Uh, yeah, I only know the word in Portuguese, so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think it will help if I would if I would say it. Yeah, but but there are economical incentives. Subvention. Uh, look, I'm just checking this on my computer here. <laughs> this is so authentic. I think no, we're yeah. so authentic. Absolutely. Subsidy. So it's a subsidy. Subsidies. It's a oh, nice okay. subsidy that increases the build-up uh, and the diffusion of renewable energy technologies, but it's also... Um, takes more money out of the pockets of, of not so wealthy people. So there you can actually see that it's not that easy to always 
align all the goals to have a just transition and have an energy transition so to make it just it's it's not necessarily connected right away and that's why we actually really have to think think about it and that's why i think it's really important and cool that actually this year's into uh, new uh, energy transitions conference is actually uh, taking this topic into account so now we just talked about that transitions look or just transitions can look very similar uh, very dissimilar in different places and not just all around europe but obviously also in in the comparison between the global south, if we want to call it like that, and the global uh, in the global north, as you said it. Now, I like to talk about this stuff, but I think what's most important is in the end to give some kind of handholds to people. Um, and I think we already gave some examples, but if I would ask you, like, what would be your advice to, I don't know, practitioners or policymakers or um, any type of people who want to contribute to a just energy transition in their venicity in their around the, in the surrounding where they live what would be something that you could could share from your research from your from your thinking Rita. yeah well i think I, i will start with people normal normal oh god this sounds so bad but you know every citizen i think get engaged mm. and while getting engaged uh try to or try <laughs> it's a suggestion of course but um, while getting engaged reading reaching out to already the, insti the institutions and um, organizations that are out there right that are trying to make this energy transition fairer so i mm -hmm. think that's uh, kind of a very general uh, suggestion but start reading start <laughs> making your own podcast mm -hmm. do your videos try to get everyone on on board in your community i think that's quite uh, quite important and kind of easy so to say because it's also important that we don't burden people yeah. with with this and try to integrate in their normal normal daily lives i think for practitioners for example and this goes back to my own yard i think it's important to actively include ethical dimension and in in the way we think design and implement our strategies towards the transition mm. to net zero emissions. And that could be done via tools such as ethical analysis, for example, uh, but also consider creating and developing and supporting transdisciplinary research, trans, not multidisciplinary mm. research. It's important to go at the edges of our, our disciplines and understand what comes out there, because probably in those areas, lie the most interesting and challenging issues we need to account account for. Um, and again, I think it's important, and there's been a lot of work done on that, um, thrive more for what we ethicists call ethical design of technologies and strategies. And what does that mean? <laughs> it's to integrate values of just and fairness in the dimensions that I spoke before in uh, in um, the, the, since the beginning of, of, of conceiving those those technologies and and the strategies, I give you an example. Um, when we're thinking about strategies for uh, for meeting the um, the, the goals in um, in uh, uh, urban transportation, if we have in the back of our minds that this transition is for all, all people should be involved. Probably we would think twice on just giving subsidies for electrical vehicles. Mm. We might all think, for example, why not support uh, free public transportation mm. for those who don't want to have yeah. vehicles, for those who don't know how to drive, for those who, whose 
culture. Blind people, for instance. Exactly. Like handicapped people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For example, for people whose tradition does not allow them to drive or don't have access to that. For example, I'll give you, it's not uh, probably uh, an initiative that I, I came about that considered giving, um, uh, giving and subsidizing bicycles. That sounds amazing, right? Because everyone can mm. ride. Not so quite. We know that uh, some people never had access to a bicycle when they were children. So for them, it's quite difficult now at the age of 40 or 50 to mm. learn mm. how to cycle. Mm. Do they feel comfortable? No. Mm. So we need to think a little bit yeah, if yeah, the yeah. strategies we think actually are truly inclusive. I, I get, yeah, I get that. On the other hand, I think that like this bicycle example could be part of a larger strategy as long as there's other initiatives, other means as well being implemented. But I guess your point is like, only focusing on bicycles would not really make a lot of sense because of the reasons that you just mentioned. Absolutely. It? Nothing against bicycles, but it's exactly, bicycles. <laughs> it's exactly my point. When we think about strategies, we need to, th to think integratively and we need to think how the communities will deal with those strategies. Hence, why we also know, um, well, we have seen the, the rise of energy citizen. Uh, energy citizenship, energy, uh, sorry, citizen science, mm. and the, the, the value of co-creation of knowledge, but also bringing those people into the design of, of uh, strategies, having in advance cleared enough which are the values that we are looking for or would like to integrate. Are we thinking of uh, accountability? Are we thinking about transparency? Are we thinking about... Uh, about um, uh, diminishing uh, social exclusion, whatever we consider integrating, then let's keep it in the back of our minds yeah. when we are designing and implementing those those strategies. Um, I like that. <laughs> and I think that's also can be interesting. It's trying to benchmark our actions at technology with these three dimensions of justice trying to test them not only if they function, scientifically speaking, if they are great uh, technically, but also are they producing positive outcomes, socially speaking? Mm. Hence why living labs can be a very good possibility to, mm. to, to test those. So that would be my idea for practitioners. Yeah, cool. So if I, if I, uh, if I wrap it up in the end, um, I, would, uh, I would, how do you call it, like make... In a short version, I would uh, try to bring it together saying um, that all these dimensions, these three dimensions of distribution process and, uh, and, and recognizing people, yeah, need to be taken into account. And whatever we do in, in, in advancing the energy transition in any type of country or context or shape or form, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's really important to, to, to integrate maybe, yeah, to think beyond just the diffusion of the technology, but thinking of what impact that really has on society and, and trying to... Yeah, not to not only to understand what impact it might have, but maybe also directly alleviating the negative impacts that it might have. Is Absolutely, that, it's exactly that. And while we're doing this exercise, is it is exactly important to know what are the potential consequences, the negative consequences, in time to mitigate them. But let me put now a very <laughs> a big but, <laughs> not a big but, but kind of saying. Sometimes you also discover there is a potential to increase the positive outcomes just by interacting, by articulating strategies or, or technologies. So let's have that in mind too. By doing this at the previous stage of conception and of development, we might increase 
the benefits. And there's a lot, a lot of uh, work done there, for example, with co-benefits. And so co-benefits are benefits from the climate change that are not just economic. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of work done there. And those, for example, co-benefits can be directly towards the less fortunate, the worse off. So yeah. we can even get more from the strategies we already have if we think in advance. And more holistically. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. I like that. That maybe was a good ending word, actually. Thank you, Rita, for joining um, for this first podcast episode here. Um, yeah, everyone, if you are interested in learning more, I I'm sure you can reach out to Rita. Is it okay if people uh, add you Absolutely. on LinkedIn? I, please, <laughs> please send me emails. <laughs> everything, everything. No, no, I will be glad to, to answer and to, if necessary, even promote some, some other... Uh, formal and informal, uh, um, I don't know, sessions to discuss these issues. Because above all, I think FAIR is about having space and time for people to discuss, reflect, learn, produce knowledge together. And at least this is how I personally understand fairness. And if you're interested in learning more about Just Transitions, then make sure to join us at the Antenu Energy Transition Conference, which is going to take place in the end of March 2022. And there will be a workshop on the 30th of March about uh, Just Transitions, and it's going to be called An Opportunity Not To Be Missed. So if you're interested in that, please uh, have a look at the show notes, click on the link, and then join us for that workshop on the Antenu Energy Transition Conference.